All right, while everybody is uh, finding their seats, uh, a couple of announcements to go over. Just a reminder on the uh, D.C. Bible uh, Museum of the Bible trip, and uh, just remind people to sign up for that. Also, the Israel trip, by the end of the month, we'll have itineraries up on the Israel trip plus uh, uh, costs. And I'm hearing a lot of rumors of different people who are ready to sign up, so I think that uh, and hope that we'll have a a uh, good large group to come along on the uh, on the Israel trip. Also, isn't it, it, aren't we living in crazy times? I mean, this morning I woke up and heard about uh, SMU. Here we have a supposedly fine private Christian school in Texas that is being intimidated by the Muslims on campus. Nobody's got the courage, moral courage, or anything to fight back anymore. They have a 9-11 memorial there with American flags, which were offensive to those poor little Muslims. And so they took it down. Now, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Because SMU is a Methodist school that is funded by the United Methodist Denomination which is a founding member of the World Council of Churches. Now, if you're not aware of the World Council of Churches, I don't rant and rave about them too much, but back in the 50s and 60s, any decent conservative pastor would warn everybody about the World Council of Churches at least two or three times a year. You ought to look at the website, see how many churches, denominations, and Christian organizations. Remember, they are socialists, they are communists, they are anti-God, they're anti-Bible, they're anti-Semitic, and they're anti-Israel. And that just about sums it up. They're anti-capitalism, anti-free enterprise. Uh, The beliefs that they hold to, you know, they're one of those groups, I talked about this when I was talking about Saul the other night, in Samuel, those groups that talk about God and use God as a cloak to give some sort of level of legitimacy as they're waving their Bible to, to what they're doing when what they're doing is completely contrary to the Bible, hostile to the Bible, anti-God, and it's basically run by a secret cabal that is elected by their members and uh, meets, I think, in Switzerland and runs everything, but they are they're evil absolute evil, evil religion, the evil side of, of uh, organized Christianity. And so you should educate yourself on, on the evils of the World Council of Churches, and people who are associated with that school in Dallas should be doing everything they can to let their uh, feelings be known to the uh, organization that is there and how... Um, horrible their anti-American stance is. But it makes sense to anybody who's a member of the World Council of Churches. So we live in a terrible time. A lot is going on, and we need to constantly be in prayer for our elected leaders and be in prayer for our, uh, our president and for his cabinet and staff because the opposition is intense. I love it. Since Tuesday night, I got... I've had at least three or four emails from people who emailed me an article about the Bible study in the cabinet. And I kind of poke fun with these people because I reply and say, I guess you weren't listening to Bible class on Tuesday night. 
because I went over it. So I said, I did, I did. Well, were you awake? So you never know what, what's going to come out of this pulpit. Anyhow, uh, we need to be in prayer for those people that are in that Bible study and the people who are teaching it and that more would join it and come to understand uh, what the Scripture really teaches about the role of government and leadership and the divine institutions and divine establishment and the foundations of freedom in this nation. So before we get started, let's have a, a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord, walking by means of the Spirit. And it is only when we are walking by the Spirit that the Spirit produces fruit in our lives. And the issue isn't confession. The issue is being cleansed of sin. And, of course, the only way to be cleansed of sin, the Scripture says, is to examine ourselves so we can confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sin to God the Father. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together to uh, study, to reflect upon your, who you are to come to understand what you've revealed to us, to realize that there are uh, many convincing proofs of the truth of, of Scripture, truth of Christianity, truth of who Jesus is, who he claimed to be, and of the resurrection. Father, we pray that we may internalize these truths so that not only do they give us personally confidence and courage, but also that we can communicate that as we witness to others and that, that God the Holy Spirit can use it to impact the world around us as we function as light in the midst of a wicked and dark world. Now, Father, we pray, too, for our country. We are thankful for those who are involved in this Bible study in the White House, those in the, who are on the cabinet. We pray that the man who leads it will be true to the scriptures and teach the truth and challenge them and that they will come to understand the importance of divine establishment and divine institutions and why those must be, be, be upheld in order to maintain freedom. Father, we pray that you would uh, now guide and direct our thinking as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. Also, an email came out today from wallbuilders, wallbuilders.com, I think. Isn't that right, John, or is it org? one or the other. That's David Barton's organization. David Barton is a historian who has done a tremendous amount of work in alerting Americans to the Christian past, to the role of Christianity in the history of, of America. And it was just a reminder that on, on uh, this date, uh, goes back to the 1785 when America first succumbed to blackmail and intimidation and extortion from the uh, Islamic nations, from what was known when many of you were in school, it was called the Burberry Pirates uh, or the Barbary Pirates, one or the other. And uh, it's because these northern nations, Morocco, uh, Tunisia, uh, Libya, uh, on the uh, uh, southern Mediterranean coast, or the southern shore of the Mediterranean, that these were Muslim nations. This were the Berber tribesmen. If you ever saw the wind and the lion that talked about the Berbers, 
and there there were Muslims, and they were attacking the ships that were going into the Mediterranean, going through the um, Straits of Gibraltar, and then they were holding these uh, Europeans and Americans captive. And so for several years, with our infant nation, it was necessary to uh, pay this extortion. But once uh, Washington became president, the nation began, began to be settled. Then they began to authorize a, a navy and to build a navy. And once they did that under Washington and Adams, then when Jefferson became president, then he stopped the practice of paying off these these Muslim extortions. So that's really the first war in American history against um, these Islamic uh, terrorists. And the first editions, according to this great email that Wall Builder sent out today, I've read much about this there and through other sources, but they pointed out that the first editions, the first edition, the first printing of a Quran in America wasn't because they were trying to encourage people to know Islam, other than to know the horrors of Sharia law and why we were at war with these Islamic countries. And you'll often hear liberals, and I love what Ronald Reagan said about liberals. He said it's not that, what was it, liberal, it's not that liberals are, are wrong, it's just that they know so many things that aren't so. And they talk about, oh, Jefferson had a copy of the Quran. And so wasn't he open-minded? And, and that's just garbage. He had a copy of the Quran so he would know how the enemy thought and understood that their system of thinking and Islamic thought and, and the Quran was totally antithetical to the principles of divine establishment, to the principles of, that were embedded within the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and that Islam could never coexist with the American form of government. And we've got to wake people up to that reality. And otherwise, we're going to succumb to their uh, extortion and intimidation again, and, and we already have. Anytime some Muslim says that they're offended, or anybody, one person out of a 10,000 or 100,000 can say, I'm offended by the American flag, then we've got to take it down. And that's just the tyranny of the minority. And we've got, it's got to stop. But we don't have the moral fiber, the moral courage, because without the Bible and the Word of God and the truth of Christianity in the souls of the people in America, they will never have the kind of moral courage necessary to take a stand against that which is false. And that's the issue. And so the only thing that we can do is we need to pray and we need to study the word for our own spiritual growth and we need to witness to people and we need to inform people of where they can go to get sound biblical truth and information because we are in a, an incredible, massive spiritual war that is manifesting itself in a cultural war, and everything that we know and love is at stake. So, having said that, let's get back to our topic here in uh, 1 Peter 3.15, giving an answer as we wrap up our study on apologetics and Christian evidences. 
This is our 20th lesson. I thought at the beginning I would do this in a short, succinct manner of six or seven hours, but uh, I've never really taught through a lot of this in this manner, so it's stretched out now to 20 hours. These are the passages on the resurrection, and the resurrection is the ultimate convincing proof or evidence that God set forth for who Jesus is, that he is the eternal son of God who was authenticated as such as the eternally begotten son of God by the resurrection. So in this last part of what we've been studying, focused on three basic questions that a lot of people ask after they become Christians, or maybe they're asking as they're witness to, can we trust the Bible? If we're going to say that Jesus is God, how do we know that, that the Gospels are true? How do we know that the Gospels are not something that was written 100, 150 years ago, some sort of legend about this guy, Jesus? How do we know Jesus even existed? All those kinds of questions. Can we trust the Bible? That was the first thing we looked at. Second question was, who was Jesus? Uh, Who did the Old Testament predict and prophesy about? We looked at those key prophecies. You should have five or six in your head. Prophecies like Isaiah 7.14, Isaiah 9.6, Micah 5.2, Jesus is born, or the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Prophecies like Isaiah 53, several in Isaiah 53 that are clearly fulfilled in Jesus. And so you have also prophecies in like Zechariah 11 about about him uh, being Jesus being betrayed, Psalm 16, that his body wouldn't undergo decay, uh, so many of them. And think about the example I gave you uh, in terms of probability that for just 10 of the 100-plus prophecies related to Jesus' first coming that were fulfilled, the probabilities are like covering the state of Texas about four to five feet deep in uh silver dollars, paint marking one of them, stirring it into that whole pot, blindfolding somebody, and the chances of them picking that out the first time uh, is the chances that only 10 of those prophecies could come true in one person. So when you think about 100, it's, it's just the, the probabilities are astronomical, and once you get past a certain point in those probabilities, it is statistically impossible that this can all happen, and so that shows the uh, that that what we claim about Jesus in terms of those prophecies is 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 remarkable. And so, having that kind of material uh, in your head is is very important when you're witnessing to people. And then we've spent the last several weeks on did Jesus really rise from the dead, talking about the issues related to the resurrection of Christ. These are the passages. We've covered them for about four weeks. Matthew 28, 1 to 10, 16, Mark 16, 1 to 11, Luke 24, 1 to 12, and John 21 through 18. Now, when we think this through, somebody says, how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? Here, and how do you know he was really dead? Why didn't they steal the bodies? We'll talk about that a little more later on. But here are the main things. First of all, to show that Jesus died. We talked about that. The evidence that's given, for example, John's eyewitness evidence that when the spear of the Roman centurion entered the side of Jesus, what looked like blood and water came out. Medical 
uh, medical experts who read that understand that that can only happen if the person is dead and that would typically happen with what the, the, the form of the body the, the uh, uh, when somebody is crucified their, their body relaxes the pressure the, that comes on the diaphragm area and that the blood would separate out into uh, lymph serum and to and red corpuscle so when it, once that uh, area of the diaphragm is pierced then it would come out and look like that the seal on the tomb and the guard on the tomb that this indicates that that the Roman soldiers who were professionals at this I mean these this isn't a guard that is hired down at the local uh, labor market where you pick up uh, 15 or 20 guys to go take care of a job for the day. These were professional guards, and they knew that their life could be at stake, so they made sure the tomb was, was that he, Jesus' body was still in the tomb. They closed the tomb, uh, and then they put this seal, which was a rope that was affixed by a wax seal to the side, and it was a crime to break that seal. The guard, any, uh, scholars suggest anywhere from 8 to 24 guards. Uh, a, a typical guard was composed of four soldiers. And so some say it was only four, just as at the cross there would have been a detail of four and one would have stood guard uh, every, and every shift. And the other view is that all four would stand guard every shift out of the 24. So in either case, there was not the opportunity to steal the body. That's one of the theories is somebody, the disciples snuck in and stole the body. You have the desertion of the disciples. Uh, why would they, they were scared to death. Why would they flee? Uh, when, I mean, excuse me, they fled when Jesus is arrested. Why, where did they get the courage to stand up for the truth of who Jesus was unless the resurrection had occurred? If they had stolen the body, where would they get the courage to stand up for the resurrection if they knew it was a lie? It's just illogical. doesn't make sense. We have the fact of the empty tomb, but very few people talk about or debate whether or not the tomb was empty. It's the significance of that empty tomb that is important, that, that it signifies that Jesus rose from the dead. And then we looked at the grave clothes, the way they were left, that that indicates that the body just, just dematerialized and rematerialized as a uh, resurrection body that was no longer mortal. It wasn't a spirit. It was a different kind of a physical body. And then we come to the post-resurrection witnesses. So we looked at each of these topics, the burial, the securing of the tomb, the seal on the tomb, the guard at the tomb, uh, more than just the... Somebody sent a great observation, said, the reason you don't see the fourth guy, he's taking the picture. Then the desertion of the disciples and the fact of the empty tomb, grave clothes, and now we're on the post-resurrection witnesses. Deuteronomy 19.15, the foundation of law in Western civilization is the law of Moses. We all know that, that in order to convict anyone of a crime, especially a serious crime, a crime of murder or any kind of felony, there need to be 
more than one witness. There need to be two witnesses, and so this is grounded in several passages in the Mosaic Law. In Deuteronomy 19.15, we're told, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. This same principle is found in the New Testament in Timothy. In 1 Timothy, I believe it's in 1 Timothy 5, it says that, that never accept a charge against an elder in the church, a pastor, unless it's confirmed by two or three witnesses. Otherwise, it's just gossip. And I can't tell you the stories I've heard that have been passed around about different pastors. And they may not be good pastors. They may be heretics, but it ha- it can't be gossip. There has to be that objective uh, confirmatory evidence by two or three witnesses or more. When it comes to the talking about the importance of the resurrection and its significance, just if the resurrection didn't happen, if it was a hoax, if the tomb wasn't empty, if there weren't witnesses, then how did it get started in the first place? If you didn't have people who were convinced against every every opposition that Jesus had rose from the dead, you, you wouldn't have Christianity. In C.S. Lewis' book on miracles, he said the first fact in the history of Christendom is a number of people who say they have seen the resurrection. If they had died without making anyone else believe this gospel, it's one thing to preach it, but if they hadn't convinced others that it was true, then no gospels ever would have been written. There had to have been a positive response to that message from people who were there at the time, and that's what we see in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see uh, uh, over a million people who have come to Jerusalem for the, uh, that, that Feast of Pentecost. And when Peter stands up on the Temple Mount and declares the truth of the resurrection, there are people there that could easily contradict him and say, well, there was no empty tomb. We were there. There's a body there. We can show you where the grave is right now. And that kind of thing never happened. And day after day, the disciples proclaimed the reality of the resurrection and that they had seen Jesus. They had talked to Jesus. They had put their hands into the nail prints and into the sword wound on his side. And and they were convinced of that. And people knew it was true because there was no evidence to contradict what the apostles were saying. J.P. Moreland, who's written another book, apologetic book, on the, uh, on the resurrection says, finally, the resurrection appearances, that is those that are described in the Gospels, if you read them, he says, these are extremely reserved. What he means is there's nothing extravagant. They don't make any uh, bizarre claims. If you look at, at the apocryphal gospels that come out in the second, middle of the second century and into the third century, you've heard of the gospel of Peter, the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Mary Magdalene. All, there's a whole bunch of these different gospels that are bogus. 
and were written, you know, 100, 150, 200 years after the events. He says, when one compares them, that is, the four gospel accounts in the New Testament, with the reports in the apocryphal gospels from the second century on, the difference is startling. In the apocrypha, detailed explanations are given about how the resurrection took place. Gross details are added in the Apocrypha. For example, the Gospel of Peter in the mid-2nd century reports a cross coming out of the tomb after Jesus, and Jesus is so tall he extends above the clouds. It's this kind of bizarre stuff that is added by these uh, Apocryphal Gospels later on. So what I wanted to do, started this a little bit last week, and I want to kind of summarize it. I gave you all a handout. If you're on the Internet, if you're watching, this document is posted on, if you go to the uh, First Peter Lessons site on the Dean Bible Ministries website, you can go to where this lesson will later be posted. The block is already there, and there's a Word document there that you can download. For those here... You can just, t- I passed it, had a handout passed out, and what that handout does, it's taken from the Bible Knowledge Commentary that was published by Dallas Seminary in the early 80s, about 81 or 82. Most of the men who wrote were uh, professors of mine, and it's very good. They couldn't write a commentary that good today, let me tell you. Uh, it was It's very good. That doesn't mean I agree with everything there. Uh, there's a few guys that are a little flaky on some things, but overall, it's very, very good. And that's a list of all the things that took place after the resurrection. It's not a list of all of the appearances there included, but it's a list. So keep it, fold it up, stick it in your Bible, because it won't be long before we're going to get there in Matthew on Sunday morning. So we'll need to have that again and probably post it with that Matthew lesson when we get there. But this is from uh, the Matthew commentary in the Bible Knowledge Commentary, which was written by uh, Lou Barbieri, who taught in the Bible Exposition Department. I think I had him for Uh, post-exilic prophets in the Gospels when I was a student. He taught many, many years at Moody before he came to Dallas, and he was only at Dallas for four or five years, and then he went back and spent the rest of his career at Moody Bible Institute. So what I'm going to do is go through the list of the appearances and and read through the passages, because one of the things I find is that a lot of people just have never read what the Bible says about all these things. They've heard it, but they've never really looked at it. So we'll look at some of the details. Not every one of them. Some of the passages are a little long. And I looked at these a couple of these last week. Uh, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene. After James and John, she got to the tomb. The tomb was empty. And uh, as is described in Mark 16, 9, uh, she comes and she's with Mary and she's with uh, a couple of other women. And so uh, when she, when she le- leaves, she's alone. She's going to go seek out James and, uh, I mean, Peter and John to tell them. And uh, Jesus appears to her. And that's described in Mark 16:9. He appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. 
Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. That's John twenty fourteen. So she's the first one. Now if you were writing an account and it, you wanted it to be believed at that time, you would never have Jesus appear first to a woman. Wouldn't happen. Women never testified in court, or rarely did. Their, their testimony wasn't considered valid. And so this is a, a really significant statement here. It indicates the honesty and the accuracy of the event, and that they weren't trying to just create a scenario to get people to believe them, but they were telling what had actually taken place. The second group that he that he appeared to were the other women that had come with Mary on the way to the tomb. And Matthew tells us uh, about this, uh, verse nine, Matthew 28, 9, And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by the feet and worshipped him. Now that's the them there refers back to those women. And then he says to them, to the women, do not be afraid, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and they will uh, see me. Now, the them, in Matthew 28, 1, we read, now after the Sabbath, as of, at the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Now, we really don't know who the other Mary is at that point. By comparing gospel accounts, we learn that she's the mother of James. This would be James the Less, the mother of James, and then another woman named Salome. Now, we'll come back and look at some of these names later on. All Matthew tells us is it's Mary Magdalene, the other Mary. But there was a group of women, and this and Salome is... When you compare the different passages, for example, Mark says that it's um, uh, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome, so we know the name of a, the third woman. When you look at Matthew, he talks about two women named Mary and the mother of the uh, sons of, of Zebedee, and that is Salome. When you compare with John, she described, John says that this other person there, he doesn't name Salome, but he says that she's the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So if Mary's sister is Salome, then, and she's also the mother of the sons of Zebedee, then that means that James and John are first cousins to Jesus. And remember, on that same side of the family, Mary's family was very interesting because her cousin was Elizabeth, who's the mother of John the Baptist, and she was married to a priest. And we're also told that John uh, was related to the family of the high priest. So apparently on Mary's side of the family, she's got familial connections to the tribe of Levi. Uh, through marriage, so that's a that's an interesting scenario there. But that's who Salome is, and so there are these women. There are at least three, maybe four women that are present. I think another passage mentions a woman named Joanna, and so they're present, and so they're the initial initial witnesses. 
Third, he appears to Peter later in the day. This is described in Matthew 28, 9, and 10. And then he appears forth to the Emmaus disciples on the road to Emmaus. I talked about this last time, that great Bible study that Jesus would have had with these two guys, Cleopas and another one, and and they didn't know who he was. He sort of disguised himself. They didn't recognize him. And then he revealed who he was at the end, and they were just amazed. And this is when Jesus took them through the Old Testament, showing all the passages that talked about him. So that would have been a tremendous Bible study to listen to. Now, all of this is happening on Sunday. He's appeared to all of these, the women. He's appeared to Peter. He's appeared to the two uh, uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then by the end of the day, he appears to all of the disciples except for Thomas. All of the disciples, later apostles, other than a Thomas. This is described in Luke 24, 36 to 43, and John 20, 19 to 24. So I want you to turn in your Bibles uh, to John 20, 19 to 24. And while you're turning there, I want to read the account to you that's given in Luke. Now, as they said these things, they were debating whether Jesus was actually risen. Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. Now, this isn't a vision. It's not a hallucination. You can't have group hallucinations. It is psychologically impossible. There's there's a lot of studies on this, and you can read about them. But if there's somebody has a hallucination, they're very hallucinations are unstable and they fluctuate. A person can't, if they've hallucinated, they're not even going to describe it the same way twice. So to get a large number of people to have the same hallucination and agree on the details is just absolutely absurd. That kind of thing just doesn't happen according to psychologists. So Jesus appears to them. We learn something about this new body that Jesus has in that he doesn't knock on the door and wait for them to open the door in order to come in. He just materializes right there in front of them. And it scares them to death. One minute, Jesus isn't there, and then he's there, and and they're terrified and frightened in verse 37 of Luke 24. And they thought they had seen a spirit. I think the old King James would have said a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Remember Many times the gospel said that when he had predicted his resurrection, they they debated among themselves what he meant by it. They just didn't comprehend it. Now, we have a hard time because many of us have heard about the resurrection of Christ maybe even long before you were saved because you in this country we celebrate Easter. And so those who grew up in a in an American culture that still had some residual Christian influence in it would have heard that Jesus rose from the dead, and we understood what that meant in some vague way. They never had heard of anything like this, so every time Jesus said, I'll rise from the dead, uh, they just didn't comprehend it. Uh, So he appears to them, and he holds out evidence. Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me 
And see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I think it's interesting. He's not flesh and blood anymore. 1 Corinthians 15 says flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. He is flesh and bone. It is a different body, different uh, makeup, different chemistry and biology than what we have in our mortal bodies now. When he said this to them, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe, um, it says, but while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they're still not fully buying into it. And they still don't understand it or believe the resurrection. So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb. And he took it and ate in their presence. Now, what that tells me is that for those of you who are foodies, that yes, indeed, in your resurrection body, you will be able to eat. Okay, I don't know if you'll want to eat, but you'll be able to eat. He gave him a piece of broth. He ate. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the di- this is John. Okay, the passage I have on the screen. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, so this is Sunday evening, sunset, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Notice how the two accounts agree. It doesn't say they believed. They were glad to see him, but they weren't at that point where they were comprehending just what had happened yet so jesus said to them peace be to you or peace to you as the father has sent me i also send you i mean they're believers but they're just not they're saved they were saved as old testament saints but they're just not getting it yet and so he says as the father sent me i also send you and when he had said this he breathed on them and said to them receive the holy spirit this was a temporary and most people miss this that Jesus at this point on the day of first fruits, that day of resurrection, that is about uh, 49 days before the day of Pentecost, is giving them a temporary gift of the Holy Spirit. He breathed on them, said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas called the twin... One of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came. So that's in John twenty twenty four. And what happens is because he's not there, when they tell him, he's going to be pretty skeptical. He's not going to buy, buy into it. So in um, the next verse, I'll skip that in verse 25, put that on the screen. The other disciples therefore said to him, that's to Thomas when he shows up, we've seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the, into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So he wants that empirical evidence. He wants to know hard and fast proof. He wants to feel Jesus' body. He wants to feel the holes in his hand to know for sure that he has Uh, been raised from the dead. Now, I think this is really, really interesting for some other reasons, but he says, I'm not going to believe until I feel the nail prints, until I have that empirical evidence. And then Jesus says to him, 
when he appears eight days later, verse 26 says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside. So this is a little more than a week later. They're inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in their midst, again emphasizing he just materializes through the doors. He says, peace to you, shalom. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. See, every now and you get, and again, you get people who will make some issue out of, of signs or evidence that that's something less. John MacArthur does this. In Lordship Salvation, what he does is he goes, he says, you can have a faith in Jesus that isn't saving. <clears throat> well, how do you know? That's the question you should ask. And he would reply, well, if you go back to John 2. In John 2, it says that Jesus did many, other, many signs. He went into Jerusalem, and he did many signs, and people believed in him. And it uses the same phrase it uses all the way through John for the gospel. Believe in him, believe in him, believe in him. And then it says, but Jesus didn't trust himself to them. And see, MacArthur makes this illogical leap. He says, see, if they really believed, now the text would indicate they really believed, says if they really believed, Jesus would have trusted them. Now, my problem with that is there's a lot of Christians out there that I won't trust at all, okay? But the text says that they, were, they asked him for a sign. And MacArthur says, see, if you want a sign, if you believe because of a sign, then that's not saving faith. Do you get the illogic of that? I mean, he says that in his book, Gospel According to Jesus. I've heard him say it. I heard it, read, read what he said. And you see, all through the Gospel of John, it's going to say when we get to verse 31, these signs are written that you might believe. The whole Gospel of John is based on giving miraculous signs so that people will believe Jesus is the Messiah. Absolutely insane position, but that's problem with the legalism of lordship. Verse 27, then he said to Thomas, uh, no, let me skip that. I've already read it. 28, and Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God. Now, did Thomas stick his fingers in the holes? No, no, because when he saw the Lord, it was a self-authenticating reality. He knew that was Jesus, and he didn't need any more, any more proof. Uh, verse 29, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, MacArthur would, would read that, well, you've seen me, so you don't have real, real faith because he's basing, you know, because of his absurd view on the role of miracles. It's totally bogus. Blessed are those who have seen and yet have believed. So, so Jesus is pointing out that in future generations, there are going to be people who don't have this kind of empirical evidence. They're not going to be able to see my resurrection body, touch my hands, touch the side. They're going to believe on the basis of the evidence of Scripture. And they will be blessed. And then he says in verse 30, or John says, 
And truly, Jesus did many other signs. There have been seven plus one sign. The greatest sign in John was the resurrection. The first sign was changing the water into wine. Truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, these what? See, we often just quote John twenty thirty one in isolation, but these are written that you might believe. And so a lot of people think it's these stories, these episodes in Jesus' life, but that's not what it's saying. It says he did many other signs, but these are written. These what? These signs are written. That's what John is saying. These signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing or by believing, you may have life in his name. Salvation is by faith alone. So that's a great episode to go to when you're talking to somebody. How do I know the resurrection is real? Take him through what Thomas went through. Then Jesus appeared to the seven by the lake of Tiberias, otherwise called the Sea of Galilee, or Gennesar, Gennesaret, Gennesaret, all variations. And that's described in John 21, 1 to 23, which is a great passage. The uh, disciples are out fishing, trying to get some food. Jesus shows up on the shore. Uh, they're not sure who that guy is, and uh, you've got Peter and uh, Thomas again, and Nathaniel, uh, the sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John, and two others are out there, and and they're fishing. They can't fish anything, and this guy shows up, and he says, if you throw your nets on the other side, you would catch your full. And so they... they um, cast in verse 6 and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish and at that point they realize who that man is on the beach and they realize it's the Lord and Peter in his typical enthusiasm uh, takes off his outer garment jumps into the sea of Galilee and uh, swims ashore and then the others are left dragging the net with the, with the fish and then when they come to land they sit down and and they eat breakfast together. So that's that appearance. The eighth appearance is described by Paul in 1 Corinthians fifteen six that he appeared to a multitude of 500-plus believers on a mountain in the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you go to Israel and you're up on that part, uh, they I've identified Tabga as the location for the fish, and then there's a hill behind, that's just tradition, there's no evidence, but it's very likely that later that afternoon, after having, having a good breakfast, later that afternoon, Jesus and the disciples, uh, word got out that Jesus was there and others came. Remember, most of Jesus' ministry is in the north, it's in Galilee, and so many came to see him. So over 500 were there, and Paul records this in 1 Corinthians fifteen six. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present. You can go talk to them. They'll all give you the same, the same evidence. Many have fallen asleep. That is, they've died. It's a euphemism for believers who've died physically. But he says, go talk to them. Then he appears to James. This is uh, James, his uh, brother, uh, his half-brother according to his humanity. 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that he was seen by James 
and then by all of the apostles. And uh, the tenth appearance, he appears to the eleven again. This is described in Matthew 28, 16 to 20, Mark 16, 14 to 20, and Luke 24, 33 to 52. So there's at least three different appearances to the eleven. And then the fourth that we know of was at the ascension. This is recorded at the beginning of Acts 1, 3 through 12. Jesus is with his disciples on the Mount of Olives, and he is about to leave them. And so he's giving them their last-minute instructions, telling them to stay in Jerusalem to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so then he ascends. The twelfth... 12, 13, 14, and 15 all have to do with appearances uh, that are sometime later. Uh, the appearance to Paul on the road to Damascus would have been about four or five years later. That's described in Acts 9, 3 through 6, and 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. We're told in Acts 7.55 that he appeared to Stephen. Stephen is being stoned. He looks into heaven and sees the Lord standing at the right hand of God. He is, uh, uh, the Lord appears to him when uh, Paul is in the temple in Acts 22.17-21. And then the last appearance of the resurrected Lord is to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos in approximately 90, probably 90, 92 uh, A.D. That's described in Revelation 1, 10 through 19. So you have these 15 different appearances. Now, that's remarkable. This isn't a hallucination that three or four people had in the upper room while they're under a lot of emotional turmoil right after the arrest and crucifixion of Jesus. He appears to all of the disciples plus the 500 over a period of 32 days following the the initial resurrection. He appears subsequently to Paul and to Stephen, uh, to Paul again, and to John. Okay, so there's all of this is evidence. There are more than two or three witnesses to this. And at the time the disciples, the apostles, are writing the Gospels and writing the New Testament, many of these people are still alive. These events, people remembered them. People from all over had gone to Jerusalem. Josephus indicates that there were about a million and a half people in Jerusalem at that time who all went back home. And they told these stories when they went back home. And they said, we were there, we heard about it. So that evidence spread. Nobody questions the empty tomb, and nobody really questions the resurrection. They're questioning the interpretation of the resurrection, and that's where real apologetics comes in, is dealing with those issues. Now, there's a lot of bogus ideas that come out about the resurrection. I remember when I was probably in high school or junior high, there was a great bookstore over at Meyerland uh, Shopping Center, and I would go in there and look for books. Uh, At the time, I was really into the Tarzan books. I was always looking for those. 
And there was this book by a guy named Hugh Schoenfeld called The Passover Plot. And I was about probably 13 or 14 years old, and I thought, I wonder what that's about. And I pulled it off the shelf and kind of skimmed through it. And he was just another person coming out. He, Jewish scholar came coming out. Jesus just passed out on the on the cross, and they buried him. And then he came to and managed to get out of the tomb. And that had a lot of popularity, uh, of course, uh, at that time. This was in the early 60s. But but that idea that Jesus had just passed out. It's called the swoon theory. And when you look at the medical evidence, and you can go out on the Internet and search for, uh, you know, medical reports on the crucifixion of Jesus, and you will find a number of them that have been written that that indicate that on the basis of everything described in the Gospels, it perfectly fits what we know about, about crucifixion. And it would be impossible... For somebody to have just passed out, and it was impossible if the descriptions are correct that Jesus could, wasn't dead when he came off the cross. Now that's the other problem, is that what you have is people who, in order to put forth their theories that either he just passed out on the cross or that the body was stolen, they just basically have to say none of the evidence that's written in the four Gospels is true. We reject that out of hand. And that's what happens with that group of select scholars that made the papers and the liberals really fawned over back in the 90s called the Jesus Seminar. And these scholars who had their little five or six colors of uh, colored pencils, and they went through and they color-coded every verse in the Bible according to these, these different codes. And one code was that could never have happened. Second one, it probably didn't happen. Uh, third was that it was highly unlikely that this happened. And then, you know, there was one category that this probably happened, and there were maybe 20 or 30 verses in the four Gospels that they thought actually occurred. And these are the people that you see on shows about Jesus on the History Channel and the Discovery Channel and of these kinds of documentaries. And over the past year or two, I've recorded several of them on uh, at home, and I watch them. Uh, I can only handle about 30, 20 or 30 minutes at most before probably my blood pressure is going up. But I look at the so-called experts that they interview, and then I go Google them, search, search for them, find out who are these people. And they, they seem to go to the people who have the most outlandish, extreme views because that's how they get funding at whatever university they're in. They've got some new theory, and so we're going to promote that, and it's going to get funded and that kind of a thing. They're not people who have solid... So scholarly uh, views or that they really believe the Bible. Their, their assumption is the Bible isn't true. That's how they start. They don't ever approach it as presenting any kind of valid valid evidence whatsoever. So when we look at the, at the scripture, you have a lot of witnesses such as Joseph and Nicodemus and the two Marys were there at the tomb while Joseph and 
Uh, Nicodemus are preparing Jesus' body. The soldiers certainly are hostile witnesses, and they believed that Jesus was dead. And then you have the guards, and none of these people are coming forward after the resurrection to say that the claims of the resurrection uh, are false. There's only two possible explanations for the empty tomb. Only two. Either one, one is that it was uh, empty because of something people did. It's a human work. The other option is it's a divine work. If it's a human work, there's only two groups of people that could have done something with the body. Either it's removed by the enemies of Jesus, but they wouldn't really have a reason to do that. They wouldn't have a motive to do that. Why would the enemies of Jesus steal his body to make it look like his prophecy of resurrection had come true? That's just absurd. And and his friends wouldn't have the ability. They're scared to death. They're frightened. They've scattered why would they come back and they don't have the ability to overpower the guards? They don't have the ability to steal the body. And if they did steal the body and they knew that what they were preaching was totally bogus and a lie, why would they give their lives? We know from uh, history and tradition that the only one who lived and died a natural death was the Apostle John. All of the others died a martyr's death. They all died for the claim that Jesus rose from the dead. Why in the world would they do that if they knew that they had conspired to steal the body? That's just absurd. And yet the intelligentsia, these academic elites with their PhDs and their dissertations and the multiple books that they churn out to deny the resurrection, think that we're stupid, that they believe that that somehow the disciples were deceived or they were promoting a hoax or something on that basis. Paul says of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, 12, if Christ is preached, if it is proclaimed that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead. That was part of the problem in Corinth. There were people, Christians, who were saying, no, that can't really happen. They had already been saved, but then through philosophy, they thought, no, nobody can really be raised from the dead. So Paul gives this argument as to why the resurrection is so important. He says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, if that is impossible, then Christ is not risen. That would be the logical conclusion. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is also in vain. So to deny the resurrection is to not deny Christ is alive. And if you deny Christ is alive, then Christianity is done for. There is no such thing as Christianity. And he goes on and he says, yes, and we're all found to be false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Jesus, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, your loved ones, believers, then, then they've perished. There's no hope for them. 
He concludes, he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are then of all men the most pitiable. We're believing a lie, and we're to be pitied, and that's false. So if the assumption is Christ didn't rise from the dead physically and bodily, then there's no hope. That's the linchpin of Christianity. That's why at the beginning of Acts, in Acts 1-3, Luke records that Jesus appeared with many convincing proofs. And the word that's used there in the Greek indicates that he's got an, he's, these proofs are an ironclad case, an irrefutable case that Jesus rose from the dead. And that's why we believe is because of the evidence of the resurrection that God gave us. So in summary, what do we look at? Just try to remember this. The seal on the tomb, the guard on the tomb, the desertion of the disciples, the fact of the empty tomb, the grave clothes, and the witnesses. Just a little bit of that. How can somebody reject the resurrection on the basis of all that evidence? But we're not to be pitied because we have hope. Because as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, We have believed that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Let's close in prayer. Father, we're thankful we have this great hope, a hope of life eternal, hope of resurrection, hope that this life doesn't end in the darkness of death, but that is just the entry into a future life, a heavenly life, a life of service, a life of ruling and reigning with Christ in the kingdom, that this is only the beginning, that real life really begins after death. Father, we pray that if there's any who listen to this lesson that have never trusted Christ, that they would come face to face with the evidence of his resurrection, that that is the foundation for the hope that we have as Christians, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried according to the scripture, And he rose again the third day according to the scripture. And those references to the scripture are all talking about Old Testament prophecies. That Jesus fulfilled the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament for hundreds and thousands of years. Jesus is the one God promised to send. Thank you for our encouragement that we have in this series we've had on apologetics, giving an answer. And we pray that we would uh, be able to remember these things, to study them, and make them a part of our life and our discussions with unbelievers. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.